We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is episode 110 of the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Back again, the Velvet Glove. Scott, how are you? Really well, thanks, Trevor. How's yourself? Going well, Scott. I, I'm I'm chuffed with episode 109. I thought that was a really good one. I thought we reached a <laughs> pinnacle with that. And if we get close to it this episode, I'll be very happy. We did well, didn't we? Yeah, it mm. was good. So, dear listener, if you listened to episode 109 and you didn't like it, then just give up on us now because that's kind of what we're aiming for here. So, um, so yeah, if you didn't like that, then uh, stop with us and just uh, move on to other things. But anyway... We've got uh, heaps to get through again, Scott, and I didn't it's warn you about this. It's never ending, is it? Mm, it is never ending. And uh, but yeah. Scott, we're going to do something quite unusual here, and we're going to kick off with the quiz straight from the top here with the quiz. Oh, okay. I haven't had one for a while. So I know you're on the Essential Report mailing list. Did you look at their <laughs> statistics or not? Actually, I'm not on their I'm not on their mailing list. No, oh, so good. I haven't looked at anything. Yeah, okay, so that's fine. So I'll right. be completely cold. So let's go. People were asked. A thousand Australian citizens were asked. How likely are you to vote in the national postal vote on same-sex marriage, Scott? People who will vote and will not vote. What do you reckon? People said. Um, I reckon probably eighty percent said they would vote. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the balance said they wouldn't vote, so 80, 80 20. Yeah. Pretty good, Scott. 81 said they would vote, 10% said they would not, and 9% were not sure. Really? And, mm, interesting part of this is they then asked the same people whether they supported same sex marriage or did not support. So, who do you think was more likely? to want to vote people who support same-sex marriage or people who don't support same-sex marriage? I've been thinking about this a lot, actually, because I've noticed that there has been a surge of people that have changed or modified their details with the electoral roll, Mm -hmm. and I don't know. Um, 50-50, I suppose. I'm hoping it's supporting. Mm. Well, good news, Scott. So... Yes, uh, of people who support same-sex marriage, 92% intend to vote. Really? Of, okay. of people who don't support same-sex marriage, 74% intend to vote. So there we go. Really? Yeah. So Ooh, that's, that's very good, yeah. That's pleasing? Mm. It is pleasing. And, look, you know, assuming the High Court allows this nonsense to go ahead... What I'm really hoping is that on the fifteenth of on the morning of the fifteenth of November that Tony Abbott wakes up with egg on his face. Mm. <laughs> mm. <laughs> because the result will come back. Yeah, the, the result will come back with an overwhelming positive result. Right. You know, that's what I'm really hoping. Well, he's yeah. going to know when, but that's probably what he wants. Like when you say egg on his face, like that's what he wants, isn't it? 
Oh, no, Tony Abbott. I was, oh. I was thinking Malcolm Tony Turnbull. Tony Abbott, yeah. yeah. Sorry. No, was... Malcolm Turnbull. Yeah. No, Malcolm Turnbull doesn't. Michael, Malcolm Turnbull wants it to come back positive. No, yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm with you there. Yep, yep. Mm. Uh, just a couple of unrelated questions that were part of that survey. Um, they said, if the US becomes involved in a war with North Korea, should Australia commit military support to the US? And... Oh, Scott, I'll help you out here because um, they said... Yes, we should commit military support was 35%. Uh, no, we should not was 38%. And don't know was 26 And yeah. uh, look, I think that uh, the don't know was a good answer because it, it depends entirely on the circumstances of what happened as to whether we should help out... You know, I think that this. I I think that the uh, the looming crisis with North Korea, we really should be relying on the um, the get out of jail free clause that's in the ANZUS Treaty, where it says that you know both sides will consider what's happened. Mm. You know, this is the whole point. Do you think that was Malcolm Turnbull was saying we're joined at the hip? You know, we're more or less in, no matter what the circumstances and. By the same token, we shouldn't say, you know, we're definitely not in, but we should really be very sceptical and wait and see how it comes about, whatever comes about, and then decide. Particularly with a nutter like Trump in the White House. Yes, we should be highly suspicious and uh, assume that he probably got them into the fine mess so he can get them out of it on his own accord. Hmm. Mm. Uh, We, on this podcast, Scott, have made a comment on this on several occasions on the fact that here we are uh, the most simple seemingly mechanisms or processes the government can't get through so the government here is struggling to hold a postal vote on an issue like like a postal Mm. survey whether the government has the power to do that is is going to the high court and there's a good chance Mm. they don't have the power however Mm. if if he so desired, Malcolm Turnbull could have us off to war involved tomorrow. In a war. Yeah, without 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 um, Parliament involved at all, you know. Mm. And we have said, well, this is just ludicrous, and uh, you know, it's hard to imagine circumstances where there would not be time to sit down the whole of Parliament in an emergency session and have a vote. And well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think we, I think we've said that you know, if missiles are on their way, that's something entirely different. Mm. You, you know, you can you can clear that out and say, well, this is a purely defensive war and that sort of stuff. So that's something that you can circumvent Parliament for, but not mm. not yeah. as to whether or not we get involved in North Korea. Even in that you case, know? we could say, all right, you can undertake some limited action, and then it's going to be ratified by Parliament very quickly, and, exactly. and we might yeah. change our minds. So they ask people, Scott. Uh, should the decision about whether or not to declare war be made by the Prime Minister or should it be debated and voted on by Parliament? What do you reckon people said? I reckon probably 70% said that it should be debated and voted on by Parliament. Pretty close, Scott. 61% said that. Okay. 22% were happy for the Prime Minister to do it and don't knows were 17 Um <laughs> No surprise that in the breakdown of party affiliation, those who vote Liberal or National were more likely to be happy for the Prime Minister to um, declare war, 33% in that case, as opposed to 22% for the general population. So Liberal National voters are much much happier 
for the Prime Minister to have that power. That's interesting. It mm. is interesting. Now, Scott, it's... sorry. We... It is frightening, but it, it is interesting. It, it is, yeah. yes. It sort of matches yeah. a lot of preconceived biases that I have lurking in me, so that's good. <laughs> it's always nice to have them confirmed. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, we're going to discuss various uh, events that have happened in Parliament with George Brandis and this marriage debate and other stuff. And I think before we get into that, uh, I would like to state some theory and then we can apply that theory to these practical situations uh, in these articles as we go along. But, dear listener, you're going to have to bear with me, and you too, Scott, because you haven't heard any of this either. But um, No, I haven't heard any. This is another one of your theories, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is. Um, so I'd like to uh, just sort of well, give some of this... this first up, the Earth is round and we da- have been to the moon. So. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's just a framework, uh, Scott, that, uh, that we need, because we're saying things like... Oh, you know, freedom of religion, well, that's just stupid and crazy and disagree with you, you numbskull, nutter. But really, we should be doing better than that. So this is my attempt, Scott, to do better than that. So, so bear with me. I've even taken my jacket off and we're ready to go. So, uh, so a little bit of theory and then we'll apply it on. And um, Scott, a book I'm going to talk about a little bit later is, dear listener, by Edward Luce, uh, The Retreat of Western Liberalism. And in there somewhere he says that uh, society has turned into a contest of ethnic grievances. And I agree with him there, although I just amended to say ethnic or minority grievances. Um, That's where we've ended up with this sort of identity politics situation. And he says... oh, and. Uh, that was in that book. But there's an article here called The Limits of Tolerance, and this is where these ideas that I'm about to put forward uh, come from. So we've broken down into um, identity politics and we've got uh, a contest of ethnic grievances. And in this article, it says a big distinction has to be made between these minority groups. Some of the minorities are ideological identities and some of the minorities are non-ideological identities. So, Scott, an ideological identity would be political, economic or religious. So these are identities that rely on ideas. You know, are you socialist, communist, capitalist? Are you neoliberal? Are you from the Keynes School of Economics or the Friedman School? Labor versus Liberal, Democrat versus Republican, and, you know, Protestant versus Catholic, Christian versus Islamic. So these are all identities that have an ideological content to them, Mm -hmm. as opposed to identities with a non-ideological content, namely race, gender, sexual orientation. There's no ideas behind that. You just are those things. Exactly. It's important when we're discussing rights and freedom of religion and other things later on in this uh, episode 
that we can make the distinction when we're talking about minority groups, hang on a minute, are we talking about uh, an ideological identity or are we talking about a non-ideological identity? Um, some of them are a little bit tricky. So, for example, uh, with a Jew, um, Jews are actually a bit of both at times, or can be. So you are a Jew by race, and, you know, you're born a Jew, but you can also be a Jew through an ideological content. So a little bit tricky. So if you're talking about um, somebody like a Jew, you would have to be careful as to whether you're talking about their identity ideologically or racially and make a distinction. Okay. Once you've categorised an identity, that then um, has an effect when it comes to tolerance. So non-ideological identities, such as race, gender, sexual orientation, these groups cannot be condemned for for their non-ideological identities. So we can't condemn people for their race, gender or sexual orientation. There's no ideas there to condemn. They just are what they Mm. are. It's not their fault, Mm. they just are. So we we can't criticise, judge or condemn. But if we're talking about identities with an ideological content, then we can legitimately legitimately judge and criticise these ideas. So... Tolerance does not mean suspending all criticism and judgment. You can be tolerant but still criticise and judge. And the article said that religion, we must remember, falls into that ideological identity, therefore open to criticism and judgment. So there you go. That's part A of the theory. There's only two parts, Scott. We're halfway there. Okay. Uh, there'll be a test at the end. <laughs> Actually, we'll do it. It won't be a test. It's going to be done through... Um, oh, what's that method of learning now where people just continually try and then they're um, competency training, Scott? That's what we'll do. Okay. Uh, yeah. So that's part A, distinguishing between ideological and non-ideological, and then that affects tolerance. The next one, Scott, was freedom because, you know, in the last week... well. Two weeks ago, dear listener, I think we here, Scott, sort of uh, did a little Nostradamus and said that what we're going to hear a lot of are these arguments about, you know... Religious freedom. Religious freedom and photographers and gay wedding cake makers and people like that being forced to do stuff they, they don't want to do and... That's where the debate's heading. So, sure enough, like, Scott, heaps of articles and stuff in the last week or so. That's that's the main game of this debate at the moment. So, Scott, I thought... Yeah, it is. Mm. So, I thought I really needed to nail down what this idea of freedom is. And, uh, dear listener, I've actually... I started typing some stuff and just got carried away. It ended up being two pages, so I put it as a post on the website so you can see it in the blog post there if you wish to um, look at it later. And I'm just going to run through it. It's going to take a few minutes. But freedom, uh, it's personal to the person claiming it. Freedom is the notion 
that you are free to do things without being stopped by other persons or things. For example, I am free to walk down the street and smell the flowers. Freedom does not mean I am free to stop you from smelling the flowers. That is not exercising a freedom. Now, I may have an obscure right to stop you, but it doesn't derive from a freedom that I enjoy. To do that, uh, if, if I've got some right to stop you from doing something like walking down the street and smelling the flowers, it must be because it's some sort of private property that I own and I've got a right of trespass against you. Or perhaps I'm a policeman exercising my duties as, a, as an officer and you're a for whatever reason, I'm able to stop you. So it's not through freedom that I can stop you. It would be through some other coercive power that I've got that I can stop you. Um, if exercising your freedom involves restricting other people as to what they can or cannot do, then the coercive nature of what you are doing removes your action from the realm of freedom and takes it somewhere else. As soon as your so-called freedom involves restricting someone else, then that necessarily restricts someone else's freedom. To be true freedom, it must happily coexist with everyone else's freedom. So we'll get on to it. These priests and clergy who are claiming freedom that actually stops other people from doing things, that's just a misuse of freedom, or the word mm. freedom. So claiming that as a matter of religious freedom, you are entitled to deny a gay couple the freedom to get married is a misuse of the word freedom. Now, the only way freedom could be relevant in this discussion would be if religious people were being forced to do something against their wishes, e.g. a clergyman being forced to conduct a gay wedding ceremony, a registry official being forced to record a gay couple on a marriage certificate, a photographer being forced to photograph a gay wedding, a religious school being forced to employ a married gay teacher. Uh, these are things where the debate has turned in the last week or so, Scott, where people are saying there's the problem with this whole marriage equality thing because if those people are going to be forced to do those things, that's a breach of their uh, freedom of religion. And my answer to that, Scott, is... We as a society have said that nobody is forced to be a clergyman, a registry official or photographer or to operate a religious school. But if you do, then we have certain rules and regulations which we will impose on you. You are not free to perform that job or run that business with total freedom. Because your job or business involves interaction with other people we as a society will impose certain rules which are in the overall best interests of our society. Now, these may range, Scott, from occupational health and safety to trade practices laws to anti-discrimination laws. For example, if you want to erect a big heavy cross on the roof of your church, we will force you to use a crane instead of a ladder. So your freedom to operate your church is subject to all sorts of restrictions that society has said, hang on a minute, we know through experience that for our society to function, we need some regulation here and you're going to follow the regulation. Mm. So how does society justify restricting freedom in these ways? Um, 
here's my theory, Scott. The fact that it is possible to run a business or do an administrative job relies on a complex civilization involving massive amounts of cooperation, trust and mutual obligations. These roles would not exist without regulations and controls. You can't say, I want the civilised job, but without the civilising restrictions, because the two go hand in hand. You can't say, I want to take the job, but keep my freedoms, because the society offering that job or business opportunity is only offering it with conditions. If you want something from society, then you have to be prepared to accept conditions that society may impose. If you want maximum freedom, then you should become a self-sufficient farmer who doesn't interact with society and will pretty much let you do whatever you want to. Then you'll, then you'll have freedom. In the current debate, we simply have a battle over those conditions. Religious groups desire to avoid employment and business laws prohibiting discrimination while society is saying these laws are necessary. Religious groups are saying they should be able to enjoy religious freedom, but society is saying we only offer the privilege of integration with our civilised society on terms and conditions that ensure the continued success of our society. If you want to join us, you must play by our rules. If you aren't prepared to give up religious freedom, then that's fine, but you won't be able to participate fully in our society. So, Scott, we see that in various examples. If you want to use the roads, you have to obey the road rules. If you want to build a high-rise, you have to follow these engineering requirements. If you want to hire an employee, you have to follow these rules about discrimination. If you want to build a new building, you must allow wheelchair access. If you want to photograph weddings, you must not discriminate against black or gay couples. If you want to run an accredited educational facility, you must not discriminate against black, gay, single, whatever people. These rules have evolved over thousands of years because they promote a healthy society. They lose effectiveness very quickly if exceptions are allowed. Religious groups are just another ideological minority. There is nothing sacred about their ideas. Their call for special consideration above other ideological, group, ideological groups is without merit. So, with the exception of subsistence farmers, individuals and groups are not free to do their jobs or conduct their businesses as they see fit. If they want to interact with our civilised society, they must agree to our rules of participation. Our anti-discrimination laws are fundamentally important and should not be watered down. There's my theory, Scott. <coughs> Say something while I have a drink of water. Um, I liked your last bit that the um, anti-discrimination laws shouldn't be watered down by anyone. Mm. I did like that. So that was very good. Um, There wasn't really... There's nothing I could really be critical of the theory or anything like that. It was just very long and complex, though. Mm. So, (laughs) In summary, dear listener... If these religious groups want to participate in our society, they have to play by the rules that society has laid down for the benefit of all of us. And granting exceptions to them is dangerous for our society. Things start to fall apart. 
And there is no special freedom of religion. There's just freedom of ideas. But bear in mind, if you want to play the game, then you have to play by the rules. Right, Scott. Armed with all of those theories, let's talk about what's happened during the week. And we'll kick off with... Well, in case anyone missed it, um, Pauline Hanson <laughs> walked into Parliament in a burqa and, uh, and George Brandis went off his... Well, he didn't go off his nut, but I'll, I'll play a bit of this clip. Hold on. Will you Order work on to on my left. ban the burqa in Australia? No, we will not be banning the burqa. Now, Senator Hanson, I am not going to pretend to ignore the stunt that you have tried to pull today by arriving in the chamber dressed in a burqa when we all know that you are not an adherent of the Islamic faith. And I would caution you and counsel you, Senator Hanson, with respect to be very, very careful of the offence you may do to the religious sensibilities of other Australians. We have about half a million Australians in this country of the Islamic faith, and the vast majority of them are law-abiding, good Australians. And it, Senator Hanson, it is absolutely consistent with being a good, law-abiding Australian and being a strict, adherent Muslim. Now, Senator Hanson, for the last four years, I have had responsibility preeminently among the ministers, subject to the Prime Minister, for national security policy. And I can tell you, Senator Hanson, that it has been the advice of each Director General of Security with whom I have worked, and each Commissioner of the Australian Federal Police with whom I have worked, that, that it is vital for their intelligence and law enforcement work, that they work cooperatively with the Muslim community and to ridicule that community, to drive it into a corner, to mock its religious garments is an appalling thing to do. And I would ask you to reflect on what you have done. Order. Scott, your thoughts. Um. I'm not entirely sure what to say because I don't like Pauline Hanson, but I also don't like the burqa. Now, the burqa is not something you see an awful lot of in Australia, but we do see the niqab an awful lot. And um, I do think that... um, I do think she had a point where she was saying that, you know, it's security reasons and all that sort of stuff, we've got to ban the burqa. I understood where she was coming from. I understand that because you and I have both said before that as a matter of course that you ought to be able to identify someone, you ought to be able to see their face and that type of thing. When you've got people going into the bank and that type of thing, you you can't wear a bicycle, you can't wear a motorbike helmet and that sort of stuff when you go into the bank. Why the hell should you have your face covered? So I understand where she was coming from. However, I did think that... um, Brandis's response was pretty powerful. 
I didn't agree with him where he said, oh, I can't even remember what he said, but he said something along the religious freedom or something like that, or, or um, yeah, that the religious sensibilities would be offended by her. Mm-hmm. I don't know that they would be offended by her. Um, I don't know that there's an awful lot of Australians that would think that you could, that you should dress up in a burqa anyway. And um, so, look, I'm not sure how I feel about it. Um, yeah. sounds, sounds like you're kind of sympathetic for Pauline Hanson and a little bit sort of um, uh, an unwilling admiration for the fine words of, of George Brandis. Is that kind of summarise yeah, your exactly. position? I think I think that it, I think that is that that does summarise my position quite nicely. Yes, <laughs> okay. you know, okay. The, the words that Brandis did did actually level at her were quite powerful and that sort of stuff, and they certainly did shut her up. Well, they shut her down for a little bit of time anyway before mm-hmm. she got on Sunrise. But um, yeah, anyway. Wow. Yeah, go on. Tell me where I'm wrong. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you're in. You're in to- well, you're wrong because Brandis is just full of shit. Like, honestly. <laughs> Irony, dear listener. Irony. Dictionary definition. Uh, a state of affairs or an event that seems deliberately contrary to what one expects and is often wryly amusing as a result. Or a literary technique originally used in Greek tragedy by which the full significance of a character's words or actions is clear to the audience or reader, although unknown to the character. That's irony. And, dear listener, the irony in this situation is just awesome. From the left, who are constantly telling us, you you have no right to tell women what they can wear except if you're Pauline Hanson, then we can tell yeah. you, you can't wear that. Like, these people are up in arms all the time saying that you can't tell women what to wear. It's entirely up to them. It's, it's, it's their own personal choice. Except if you're Pauline Hanson, then you can't wear that. I don't, I don't like the statement you're making with that. You can't wear it. Yeah. You know, so that's from the left. And, Scott, from the right... We've got George Brandis, who previously, uh, quote, I support freedom of speech. People have the right to say things that other people find offensive or insulting. Except if you're Pauline Hanson, then I don't like it. Mm. People are just holding such contrary positions here that it's just, it's so ironic. And they can't see it. I mean, this... Uh, let me find it where I've... Oh, I just... Yeah, George Branson, previously. Um, George Brandis. Uh, yeah. Sorry, George Brandis, thank you. Um, no worries. Uh, in a free country, people do have rights to say things that other people find offensive or insulting. Uh, this is from the 18th C debate, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, and at the time, yeah. Penny Wong interjected and Senator Brandis said... Well, do you know, Senator Wong, I think a lot of things I've heard you say in this chamber over the years are, to my way of thinking, extraordinarily bigoted and extraordinarily ignorant. But I would defend your right to say things that I consider to be bigoted and ignorant. 
That is what freedom of speech means. Unless, of course, you're Pauline Hanson. Pathetic, George Brandis. Just pathetic. You're either for free speech or you're not. And to the left who say, you know, women should be able to wear whatever they like. Well, you know, either women can or they can't. And the double standards, just terrible. Scott, um, what was Pauline Hanson doing when she was wearing the burqa? What is she really saying and doing? And I well, think, okay. What she was what she was allegedly saying was that she was she was actually trying to draw attention to the security arrangements and that sort of thing. That, that, and that she was trying to draw attention that you can get away with wearing this in Parliament. Mm. And she was trying to make out that it was offensive, not offensive, but it was. Um, uh, it was an an. Uh, I can't even say it, an anathema, an anathema mm-hmm. to the um, whole point of, of having security and that sort of stuff because you could just hide anything under there mm. and walk in and blow yourself up. She was? Which is, it's hard to argue with, yes. Mm. So she was making a security point, but I also, yes. I also think that she was basically saying, by wearing it in that situation, this is a terrible garment, it's intimidating... It's a security risk. It's antisocial. This is what it looks like in real life. I look silly in it, and I say we get rid of it. Like, that's all the sorts of things that she's trying to say by wearing that, I think. Perhaps not as eloquently, but, um, you know, that's really, I think consistent with what she's doing there. She's drawing attention to herself and to the issue and saying uh, this burqa is something she doesn't like and she's drawing attention to it and saying at the same time we should be passing laws to get rid of it. And um, it's good. I think it does make a point actually when you see it in the flesh and you see uh, somebody's entire face covered, it is there's something intimidating about it. It's uncomfortable to not be able to yeah, see I, a person's face. And we I don't think that the word intimidating is the right word, but um it is uncomfortable, isn't mm. it? You know, um Tony Abbott said it he said that, you know, he found the whole garment oh, I forget what he said, but he said something along the lines that it was um he said basically what you're saying, you know. It was intimidating and that sort of stuff to to witness someone dressed up like that mm. and when Hanson was sitting there completely covered you know you couldn't see her face or anything like that and it really was off-putting wasn't it it's a bit spooky but anyway yeah um so Brandis said you have mocked half a million Muslims so for starters yeah, most yeah. Muslims <laughs> don't wear that garment so exactly you can't say that you've mocked a half a million Australian Muslims because many of the Muslims who don't wear that could well agree with Pauline Hanson that it's a stupid garment and that it's actually got some quite evil connotations with it in the way that it's controlling of women. So it's so... um, uh, To assume by George Brandis that half a million Muslims 
all think the same way about an issue, mm. what, because all brown people think the same, is essentially his thinking. Like, he's the one actually uh, being racist in this situation because he's just, with the ballsy statement, said, oh, the half a million Muslims in Australia would all think that that's insulting. Scott, as I said before... Yeah, I, I doubt you'd have... Maybe have 100,000 of them might be insulted by it, but that would be about it. I mean, I mean, amongst my circles of different people, it's very hard to get people to agree on anything. And, you know, in the secular party, yeah. when I was a member with you on the national executive, you'd have eight people in a meeting and... We're all there because we're secularists. Four but, different positions. But, but yeah. getting people to agree on just a secular issue was bloody hard. <laughs> so, yeah. let alone saying that half a million people agree on on a topic, it's it's actually racist to assume that all those people think the same way. Exactly. Um, yeah. The other thing is, uh, he said, you know, his big thing, and he sort of chokes up and says that you're. You're mocking, uh, you know, this, this fine religion. Scott, uh, mocking is just poking fun at something. And, mm. you know, right now in Melbourne, the Book of Mormon is being played and that's, you know, a musical um, show that just is mocking Mormonism to the absolute max. And that's all fair game. Don't see George Brandis in the streets complaining about the mocking of the Mormon faith that's happening in a major theatre in Melbourne at the moment, and I can't wait for it to come to Brisbane because, Scott, we're going to be there on opening night. It's going to be fantastic. (laughs) So what's wrong with mocking a religion? As our theory has already described in 10 minutes ago, religion is just just an idea. It's ideological Mm. content. It's up for mocking. We can't mock people because they're black or because they're of their gender or their sexual orientation. But if it's ideological content, it's up for criticism and judgment. So there's nothing wrong with uh, mocking. But I would say she went further because, yeah, was she mocking? I'm not sure. But you might just say she was. She went further because she was saying more than just poking fun of it, she's saying, well, this is an evil practice and I want it stopped, which is actually mm. stronger than mocking. Um, mm. Finally, on the security advice bit, you know, the people in the Muslim community who are wearing burqas, they're not the ones who are helping our security forces. No, they're not. And it is, it's, it's the, um, what do you call them, the social it's, Muslims. Yeah, it's the more moderate uh, Muslims who would be yeah. helping. And yeah. we can't conduct activities through fear of reprisals. And, you know, it's, uh, that's, that's not how to operate a society. So on any number of levels, Scott, and add to that the condescending with respect I counsel you tone of just Mm. an uppity pompous barrister that stand up and cheer that for goodness sake I think it was just terrible there you go dear listener there's one for the water cooler if you like that approach to the George (laughs) Brandis 
statement. There's an, there's an alternative for you. <laughs> yeah, it's an alternative for sure. I, I still don't know exactly how I feel. I mean, I've, I've got a foot in both camps because I did have some sympathy for what she was trying to do, but I also have some sympathy for Brandis too. And he did, you know... He is right. We do need to make sure that we have good relationships with the Muslim community so that we can get the information that our security forces need to prevent an attack. And, you know, that, and, dear, um, and that, dear listener, is why I'm the Iron Fist and Scott is the Velvet Glove. <laughs> dear listener, not too long ago, you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast was available to download. Did you silently think to yourself, wait, a new podcast? I like listening to those guys. If so, then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast. Your donation will help cover some expenses, but more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and click on the donations link. Scott, you heard the expression dog whistling? Yes, I have. It's, been, it's, it's coming out a fair bit on just different things. Uh, dog whistle politics. Political messaging employing coded language that appears to mean one thing to the general population but has an additional, different, or more specific resonance for a targeted subgroup. So an example of this, dear listener, dog whistling would be uh, Donald Trump when he said in relation to Charlottesville, oh, there's fault on both sides. Um, yeah. To the general public, that kind of means he's just being... Um, wishy-washy. Uh, wishy-washy, yes, even-handed... But to his supporters, that's just saying, good on you guys, keep on going, you know. Exactly. Nod, nod, yeah. wink, wink. So that's dog whistling. Uh, reason I mention it, there'll be a link to an article from New Matilda where the, uh, the guy in charge of Hillsong, Pastor Brian Houston, is accused of dog whistling to his congregation in his comments about marriage equality, where he sort of sounds reasonable and even-handed, but according to this article, if you read between the lines, he's basically just telling his flock to um, to vote against marriage equality because that's what it says in the Bible. So that's a, a dog-whistling thing. Did you want to say anything about that one, Scott, or just move on? Um, no, I didn't get that. Uh, I didn't get that oh, okay. one. So anyway, that's fine. Um, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. Mm. I uh, mean, Houston has been a um, evangelical nutcase for God knows how long. Mm. So yeah. Um, and those characters just love the Bible in its uh, literal interpretation. Uh, Scott, mm-hmm. this article came out um, a few days ago, uh, titled. Married Sunday, fired Monday. Churches threatened yeah. to, to dismiss staff who wed same-sex partners. So, I mean, that's bloody disgusting, isn't it? The, the Australian mm. Catholic Church is threatening to fire teachers, nurses and other employees who marry their same-sex partner if, if gay marriage is legalised. 
you know, it's the only reason they can get away with this is because we have bent over backwards for them in, you know, religious freedom and all that sort of nonsense. Surely this was some if obscure that, cleric out the back of Burke or with a flock of five, Scott. I mean, who would say this? No, Surely this is the Archbishop of Melbourne. <laughs> He must have been speaking off the cuff or something, was he? You know, you know, in a private situation. No, he was speaking exclusively to Fairfax Media. <laughs> pointedly warned the church's eight hundred eighty thousand employees that they expected to uphold its teachings. <laughs> you know, it was clearly a planned comment, wasn't it? Yep. You know, he was talking to the media and that sort of stuff. He knew all he was saying, and he just. <laughs> he just went off at it, didn't he? He's, not, a, he's not alone. Archbishop Hart was I know, backed up by Archbishop Timothy Costello, chair of the Bishop's Commission for Catholic Education, who cautioned teachers against undermining their school's values if same-sex marriage became law. And he, the two of them were not alone because then Frank Brennan, chief executive of Catholic Social Services Australia defended the ability for church schools to refuse employment to same-sex attracted people for aged care facilities and for aged care facilities to reject a married couple. I'll get on to him in a minute. But, uh, yeah, again, it's the head honchos of these groups. It's not some... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they, they are out of step with their own flock too because their flock is actually behind same-sex marriage. But, you know, it's uh, hey. it's really very frustrating that you get this. I mean, like it's like you said, you know, was it just an off-the-cuff comment? No, it wasn't. It was at a bloody media circus that he said it, you know. Mm. So, um, uh, so, yeah. So, Sir Frank Brennan, Chief Executive, Catholic Social Services, this week defended the ability for church schools to refuse employment to same-sex attracted persons and he also said that aged care facilities should be able to reject married gay couples from coming to live into an aged care facility and okay you know we can say oh it's just crazy and stupid and how can they possibly do that but i hope dear listener based on the theory that i gave in the first 10 minutes we can say to ourselves well hang on a minute the church is just an a minority group with ideological content with no special rights above anybody else and we as a society have the right to say to anybody who wants to participate in our society that we've got certain rules that we need to keep the whole rock show functioning and we should be able to say to these people if you want to run an aged care facility and use all of the civilising structure that we have available then you have to play by our rules. So Exactly. Yeah, I mean you have to. This is really crazy. We've got to, you know This is what's really frustrating about the Catholic Church is it's managed to get its tentacles involved in that, that they've got hundred and eighty thousand employees mm. across the country. Mm. And those employees should be entitled to exactly the same protections you and I have. Mm. You know? Scott, in, in an iron fist government, I would be saying to them uh, uh, these are the rules. Play by the rules or we're shutting exactly. you down. And if you decide to shut down everything overnight with leaving 
these people in limbo, then we will just take over your facility. Thank you very much. Like that's yeah, we'll, we'll take it. We'll we'll take it. You know, you can you can run it as a Catholic church up till five pm on Tuesday, yeah. and as of nine am on Monday, uh, as of nine am on Wednesday, it's taken over as a government run institution, yeah. and that's it. And by the way, don't expect fair compensation for it. Well, that will all be discussed. Um, taking into account everything that the society has done for you. So if you don't want to play by the game, the, the game by our rules, um, you can pack up your marbles and go. Exactly. Mm. Um, Scott, article here from I mean, it'd Kevin. only take a month to remove all the... It'd only take a, it'd only take a month to remove all the... Mm pictures of mary and joseph and <laughs> jesus and all that sort of stuff so you know yeah you could you could easily convert those little church schools into secular government schools <laughs> that'll be a topic for another time as to as to what compensation how that gets worked out if if necessary but anyway we'll come to that another time uh scott article here from kevin donnelly uh he's one who's uh, uh hugh harris has battled with at different times he came out with an article yeah. that was just... You know, it, it, this is the one I really love. Mm. It's also true that about 98% of the Australians identify as heterosexual, and according to the 2011 census, only 1% of Australian couples are same-sex, with surveys suggesting only a minority want same-sex marriage. I mean, <laughs> mm. what surveys has he been looking at that suggest only a minority want it? Mm. You know, it's absolutely crazy mm. he says there are more important issues to worry about um well there probably are but that was exactly why the government should have just had a conscience vote on it we should have had this settled months ago he's got a very traditional view yeah. he says uh to put it bluntly gays and lesbians are physically incapable of procreation and having their own children for them to believe otherwise is to deny the life choice they have made all part of the argument that uh marriage is for reproducing and he doesn't really deal with the situation then of a heterosexual infertile couple, you know, should they be allowed to marry? He doesn't answer that. I, Scott, I... I mean, uh, it's absolutely ridiculous, you know, because yeah. Fred Niles, 80 in the shade, isn't he? Anyway, you know, he recently got married to a 60-year-old bride and, you know, they're clearly beyond procreation. Mm, true. You know, it's, it's absolutely phenomenal that... He could get married, but me and the better half can't. <laughs> mm. Mm. <coughs> I actually um, emailed um, Kevin Donnelly and said, saw your article, love to talk to you about it, uh, promise you a respectful and fair hearing. Um, haven't heard back from him. So we, we will get one of these characters on here at, at some stage, Scott. That will be interesting. You haven't heard back from. Um, you haven't heard back from the uh, uh, David Van Jen. That, no. Uh, yeah, that's him. No, David. Okay. If you're out there, please. It'll be fun. <laughs> um, oh, I think I've already dealt with the Frank Brennan one. Um, uh, he complains that yeah. freedom of religion. He's, he said, "I will be pleased when marriage equality is recognised by Australian law, but we need to consider practical religious freedom questions to give institutions time to adapt." Mm. I mean, <sighs> he is saying it, that it uh, makes freedom no of, sense whatsoever. He is saying that uh, uh, freedom of religion is being treated as a second-order right in Australia because we don't have a Bill of Rights. 
and that under international law, freedom of religion is a non-derogable right. And I simply say that that's just wrong, Frank. I don't care what it is internationally. Religion is just... There's no such thing as freedom of religion. There is freedom of ideas, and religion is just one of those ideas. That's all it is. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, Scott... Uh, would you like to know what the entire Aboriginal people of Australia think on the topic of marriage equality? <laughs> You're referring to the Bark Petition, are you? Yes, because all you need to do is read the Uluru Bark Petition. Uh, it's addressed to the Prime Minister of the Parliament and the Parliament um, from the Aboriginal people of Australia. Um, various tribes listed representing the Aboriginal people of Australia hereby declare a series of paragraphs, one of which is, although Aboriginal people come together as one nation through many different self-governing language and kinship groups with unique cultures and traditions, the sanctity of marriage between man and woman continues to be held in honour among all. Our fathers and mothers are also honoured and form the foundation of our families, clans and systems and pass down our teachings, our culture, our traditions from generation to generation. It is therefore an affront to the Aboriginal people of Australia to suggest another definition of marriage. <laughs> That's the Bark petition. How dare they? How dare they? This, this group of numbskulls pretending to speak on behalf of all the Aboriginal people of Australia. The call of these people. Scott, if I got up in the street and said, oh, I speak on behalf of all the white men in Australia, they'd lock me up for being just an idiot. Like, like just because a couple of people get dressed up in a possum suit and arrive in Parliament with something written on bark, you're going to say that they're representing the whole of Australia? For goodness sake. Yeah. It's a load of nonsense, isn't it? You don't have the right to speak on behalf of your minority until you are a fully elected representative of your community. And even then, you would have to admit that a lot of people will disagree with a lot of what you say and you should count your proclamations in that way. It's just... Mm. uh, This is one of the things of identity politics, is that these leaders... Um, get up and say, oh, well, you know, of course all of, all of my group think this particular way. Well, don't. Exactly. It's really... Ugh. Scott, I'm going to give some... When I read that Bark mm. petition, I just thought to myself, you know, this is ridiculous because you've got a, a group that's has been picked on by the majority for God knows how long, and yet they won't show any sort of... Um, What's the word I'm groping for? Uh, any sort of nicety towards another towards another minority group in the country? You know, it's absolutely appalling. The, when I when I read it, yeah. you know, the first thing I did, Scott. What's that? Well, there was two people of uh, two Aboriginal people listed there as the leaders of this. The first thing I did was mm. was Google them with the word religion yeah. to see what cropped up because I thought. <laughs> For sure, they've been raised on some Christian mission and indoctrinated. But alas, dear listener, I couldn't find anything. But that was my initial thoughts. 
<laughs> Scott, I'm going to give some kudos here to the Islamic faith in a second. Let me read something to you uh, from today's Courier Mail. Yeah? Mm, this is from uh, an... Uh, Council of Imams President, uh, Queensland President, Yusuf Pia, told the Courier Mail about um, gay marriage. We cannot agree with it because of our faith, Imam Pia said. It is basically a religious viewpoint. Islam also explicitly and unambiguously states that marital relationship is only permissible between a man and a woman, and any other marital relationships are Islamically impermissible. Well, here's the here's the compliment, Scott. At least he's honest, and he's saying mm. it's because of our he's faith, to do with and our faith. religion, yeah. and our doctrine, and this is just what we believe. Without without the freedom of religion nonsense tossed in as exactly. a red herring. So, at, at least there's some respect there for honesty. There yeah. Coming quite even-handed now, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> it's tough. It's tough for the. It's tough, isn't it? You, you know, you, for the gay marriage side. I mean, not only the crazy white Christian evangelicals out there. You know, Aboriginal communities, Islamic communities. They're all ganging up. It's just tough. Yeah, yeah they're all ganging up, but they're 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 all the voice of a minority in the country. That's um, mm. you know. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I have no doubt, you know, that when we go back to episode eight, when this whole nonsense first came out, I said at the time that I have no doubt we will win this, that we will win the vote, but it will be a bruising encounter, Mm. you know. Mm. And we've already seen pretty ugly signs going up in Melbourne and that sort of stuff. So, Mm. you know, it's one of those things. I've no doubt that if it comes to a vote, we will win it, but it will be a bruising encounter. I reckon that the people involved in this fight are going to become excellent foot soldiers down the track against religion on other issues such as assisted dying and churches paying tax and stuff like that. Like, I would have thought these people are going to be so bitter about the opposition from religious groups that they'll hopefully... Once they've licked their wounds and dusted themselves off after a hard-fought victory, will be will be ready to go. Yeah, let's let's go for those guys and other things now. Let's, I'm hopeful. Well, I, I really, I really think you're right there, and I think that um, just the conversations I've had with friends of mine and that sort of stuff who are out on the front lines, I've said to them, I said, you know, we. <laughs> I said, once we win this, we've got to turn around and we've got to make the bastards pay tax. Mm. And they've all sort of sat there and they've thought about it and they've come back to me and said, yeah, you're right, we've got to make them pay tax. So. Mm. <laughs> They'll be good foot soldiers down the, down the track, hardened warriors exactly. by this whole experience. Um, mm-hmm. Scott, we don't en- mention it often enough, but dear listener, uh, one of the ways you can support us is by going onto iTunes and leaving a positive review. And for the first time in a while, I went on there and had a look and saw a couple of reviews that I hadn't seen before. Uh, one of them, um, look forward to this podcast by Sarok. This is an entertaining and intelligent discussion of politics, religion, education and other important issues in Australia. If you're not interested in politics or if you're confused by it, then you need to listen to these guys. They removed... <laughs> They remove the mystery and put forward an analysis of the issues that will entertain and inform you. Thank you, Sarah. That's thank you very a much. Great review yeah. and 
Another one here um, titled Great Listen by The Happy Dog, who says, Fantastic podcast and gets better every episode. But if you can't handle the truth about the dismal state of Australian politics, give this one a miss. Excellent, <laughs> excellent advice, <laughs> The Happy Dog. Thanks for that. Uh, dear listener, one of the ways you can help us out would be go onto iTunes, leave a positive review. In fact, it's a little bit tricky, and there are instructions on the website as to how to do that. If you look at the main menu on our website, there's a little link that says how to leave a review. So if you'd like to leave a positive review, please follow those instructions. If you would like to leave a negative review, then don't. Do something else. <laughs> Scott, um, it just annoys me the mangling of the English language at times and uh, I don't listen to... I don't watch Q&A anymore, but Bill Shorten was on last night and I saw a thing come across my news feed um, which was an excerpt from it, so I'm just going to play a little bit of that now. So, Mr Shorten, uh, following Senator Hanson's stunt, per se, uh, with the burka in the Senate the other day, I believe that, like, the majority of Australians actually ended up reacting and seeing it as a bit of a joke. Uh, there was a lot of mockery, a lot of jokes, and a lot of memes that were circulating uh, yes. the internet following it. I saw some of them, yeah. Um, rather than actually... I believe that, like, rather than actually seeing it as a blatant act of racism in a very, very public forum... So, as a leader of one of the big national parties in this mm -hmm. country, how do you intend to see that this culture of casual racism doesn't actually permeate the rest of our society and actually ensures that we are remaining diverse Australia as we were always intended to be. And I think that's a sensible way to handle some of these people. Okay, just a quick one, uh, picking up the questioner's point, was it racism? She said it was racism. Oh, I thought it was stupid. Uh, I don't think denigrating, uh, <coughs> denigrating a whole religion makes any sense whatsoever. Let, let's be clear. The burqa is a pretty challenging and it's a different form of garb that we're used to. But just marching into Parliament, drawing attention to yourself, I thought that was dumb and disrespectful to a, to a religion. But not racism? Well, is it... What do you call it when you're disrespectful to a religion? Would you call that racist? I'm asking you the question. Bigotry? <laughs> Bigotry? I don't know. I mean, I'm being technical, but I'm showing I've got no time for it whatsoever. You call it xenophobia. We... Bill, we've been through this before on episodes a long, long time ago. <laughs> if you were an avid listener to our podcast, you'd be okay. It's not racism to criticise Islam. No, it's not racism. It's not a race. No. Mm. Xenophobia, dislike or prejudice against people from other countries, uh, fear or hatred of foreigners or strangers, or that which is foreign or strange. I mean... That's the sort of notion that's being discussed. Whether Pauline Hanson was guilty of that or not is another matter. On certain, on many occasions, she probably is. Um, but as we've said, Islam's just a set of ideas. Criticising ideas and saying they're bad isn't necessarily xenophobia or bigotry because ideas are up for judgment and criticism. Unlike. Sex, gender, race. Ah, Scott, um, skip. You know, we had that thing about uh, the Google um, guy who was sacked because he said 
Um, you know, really, there are biological reasons why there are more men in tech companies than women. Can't we just acknowledge mm. that? Article I've linked to where this professor of psychology says, in effect, um, is it nurture or nature? Actually, it's both, and there's certainly elements of nature and just biology that mean that um, women would be less likely to be in those roles than men, and certainly uh, our society and its effects also play a part, and it's a bit of both. So, so that was that. Uh, Scott, the IFVG Secular Index is 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 bubbling away, dear listener, and in the past yes, and week, I must admit I haven't done anything this no, week. I, I apologize, no, yes, so. I noticed that, but uh, I believe your brother is helping out, Scott. So he's oh, is he? Yes, okay. he's starting at Z and working his way back to the front. So <laughs> good on you. Uh, and uh, and another new patron uh, has signed up to do 10 and actually Matt in Western Australia is going to do all the Western Australians so good on you Matt and um, yeah. so there's a few people there not as many as I would have hoped dear listener like come on just put your hand up honestly just, you just have to google away if you are going to do it you need to you need to justify what you've what you're saying here so if you do a bit of research make sure you, you uh record the links where these things are said so that we've got um uh ability to show the workings here so um as much information as possible and any links to any information make sure you provide that um did get a comment on facebook and on the blog um from dean did you see this one at all scott I did see that, yeah, mm. and I I'll, couldn't I'll, agree with him. No, but anyway, I'll quote yeah. him. Dean says, quite simply, you've just lost an opportunity to do this well. You should have never announced this. You should have sent a questionnaire to any politician that you didn't know about already and asked them a series of questions. And I said to Dean, well, Dean, if you provide me with an email list formatted with names and email addresses, I promise that I will send it out to every single one of them. And I haven't heard from Dean. So thanks, Dean, for all that. What I have done, Scott, is... Um, I Now, I did... What did I do? John Alexander, former tennis player. Mm-hmm. He's the Liberal member... Um, for Benelong now. Yeah, House of Reps in New South Wales. And there was actually no public information about him at all related to secularism. So I thought, you know what? In this situation, I need to send this guy a questionnaire. <laughs> so I've done one, dear listener. It's on the website if you're looking to be involved in this. And uh, so if you are doing it and you find that you just can't find any information about somebody, then... Uh, there's a questionnaire. Ten questions, Scott. This is what I reckon will determine if somebody's secular or not, if we ask them and they answer these. Are you in favour of the general principle of the separation of church and state? Would you cross the floor against party policy in order to remain true to a religious conviction on issues such as marriage equality, assisted dying and abortion law? Is it appropriate that the government funds private religious schools? 
Should the current system of religious school chaplains be replaced by secular school chaplains? Should volunteers from religious groups have the right to enter government schools for an hour a week for the purpose of providing religious instruction to members of their faith, or should they be banned and advised to conduct such activities outside of government schools? Should religious groups lose their special tax-exempt status? Should prayers in Parliament be abolished? Have you ever done anything to promote secularism in Australia? Are you religious, and if so, what religion do you practice? And on a scale of 1 to 10, blah, 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 how would you rate yourself? So I think if somebody answered those questions, we would get an idea of just how secular they are because one of the people I did, Scott, was Anne Alley, Muslim, member, Labor member in Western Australia, and as I was reading stuff, she was claiming to be quite secular. She describes herself as a secular Muslim. Um, but I couldn't find any public comments on her on any specific secular policies other than, Scott, she wants to amend Section 18C to include religion so that mm. all those provisions about offending, insulting, etc., which currently you know, don't apply to religion, she wants them to apply. So I figured that was a bad thing for secularism. And I've given her a three on the basis of that. Even though she describes herself as a secular Muslim, the fact that you want religion yeah. included as a special category in Section 18C makes me think you're not that secular. No, I'd agree with that uh, ranking there because it is, um, yeah. Mm. It really does. Yeah, 18C is bad enough, but it would be just bloody uncomfortable if, if we had it opened up to religious faith. Mm. Yeah. Once we've got a few more of these, well, once they're all done, uh, we can review and be a, perhaps try and be a bit more consistent in how we actually come up with our index. But anyway, we're, we're charging ahead, dear listener. Feel free <laughs> to join in and help the IFVG index. All right, I will do for next week the Honourable Karen Andrews yeah. and Julia Banks. So I will do those two for Good next on you, week. Scott. No worries. Do you remember the story about the consecrated virgins, Scott? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> we we got a voicemail about that, but to 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 the person who left the voicemail on that, you just you put the echo up way too much, and it just is too hard to actually understand it. I think to broadcast it. If you do it again. It was actually a message from Jesus on that one. So um, if you do it again with just the reverb turned down a little more, because it was just a, a touch too hard to hear. But um, uh, dear listener, this was about um, women in, well, anywhere where there's a Catholic parish can become a, a consecrated virgin where they basically marry Jesus Christ in a and an authorised Catholic ceremony. And uh, we previously reported on three women who had done that, and there's a link to another one, Jessica Hayes, 38-year-old Catholic school teacher. She's become a consecrated virgin. Um, oh, where is she? Uh, Fort Wayne, United States. I'm thinking in the south somewhere, Scott, perhaps, I don't know. Yeah, Catholic. Who knows where Fort Wayne is? Anyway, 
she's become one. Um, quote, I think that in some sense we're all called to be married. It's just a matter of discerning how. So my marriage is to Christ and someone else's marriage is to their spouse. A priest's marriage is to the church. That's a good desire that's planted in us by God. So she's got a fairly liberal interpretation of marriage, and so does the Catholic Church when it comes to consecrated virgins, up to 2,000 of them currently married to Jesus Christ. Yet, you know, you can't have a gay couple marry each other in Australia. Same church. Well, yeah, I mean, it just, it's, it really, um, you know, that whole thing there, I mean, because that's, that's supporting polygamy, isn't it? Mm. You know, it's. Yeah. It, it, it's, you know, they keep saying the slippery slope towards polygamy and that sort of stuff. Well, you can think to yourself, okay, well, you know, you guys are already practicing polygamy anyway. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Uh, it's inconsistent. Um, Scott, part of that book that I referred to, Edward Luce, The Retreat of Western Liberalism, in there he he uses an expression referring to Donald Trump um, is operating as a Ku Klux Kardashian. <laughs> a combination, dear listener, therefore, of a sort of a white racist supremacist with reality TV nothingness. And you've got yourself Ku Klux Kardashian. That's Donald Trump. That's a good way to refer to him, I reckon. It's very true, yeah. Mm. All of, uh, like, he had a number of different business councils, business advisory councils, and after all of this brouhaha about Charlottesville, these business guys have all left and these councils have had to be disbanded. So, um, uh, actually, Jonathan Pye had something to say on that. He's got a good way of describing it. You know your presidency is in trouble when billion-dollar businesses who have a huge amount to gain from a Trump White House start walking away. It's like the phrase rats from a sinking ship was invented for this very moment in American history. (laughs) Rats leaving a sinking ship from the Ku Klux Kardashian and there's one. Yeah, it's... uh... There's, there's even the Arts Council and that's sort of, the, the President's, oh, I forget what it was called, but I heard it this morning, it, it's disbanded too because they've all just said, no, nah, this is ridiculous, and they're jumping off. There's know. one group, Scott, that's remained firm. Nobody's leaving yeah. and they're solid as a rock behind the President. Dear listener, who could that be? Give you one guess. Yeah, you've got it. <laughs> Religious Evangelical Advisory Board. A mixture of... A mix yeah. of radical, radical born-again preachers, TV evangelists, conservative political influences, still stands almost intact. Jerry Falwell, he's... Jerry Falwell Jr., he's in it. He tweeted on Wednesday, finally a leader in the White House. Jobs returning, North Korea backing down. Bold, truthful statement about Charlottesville tragedy. So proud of Donald Trump. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. Oh, hang on, from the man himself. At what point does America get demeaned? At what point do they start laughing at us as a country? We don't want other leaders and other countries laughing at us 
anymore, and they won't be. They won't be. We're not laughing, Donald. We've just started crying for you, really. Yeah. <laughs> it's gone. It's gone beyond laughter. It really has, hasn't it? You know, it's um, <laughs> it's a bloody disgrace. Actually, it's really, it's really appalling. Mm. You know, it's nice to know that members of President Trump's cabinet attend a weekly Bible study, according to a new report. CBS News reported that once a week, about a dozen members of the cabinet gather to study scripture. Among those who regularly attend, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue, Energy Secretary Rick Perry, CIA Director Mike Pompeo, and Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Quote, it's the best Bible study that I've ever taught in my life, Ralph Drollinger of Capital Ministries told the Christian Broadcasting Network. Quote, they are so teachable, they are so noble, they are so learned. Oh, my God's sake. <laughs> Scott... Time to thank our patrons, Ayami, Sean, yes. Alex, Wayno, Jason, Grant, John T, Craig, Janelle, Al, Ken, John A, and new patron, Roberta, a.k.a. Bobby. Good on you. Thanks for your support. Oh, and a message... Thank you very yes. much. We really appreciate it. Um, a message to you... Uh, yeah, a message to you from uh, the non-patrons who listen to the show. You're, you're our heroes as well. Scott, how are we, go, how are we going for time? I've lost track here because we kicked off late. We're probably... Uh, we're at an hour 20, apparently. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, uh, just quickly, uh, dear listener, this book, uh, Edward Luce, The Retreat of Western Liberalism. Um, by the way, dear listener... A lot of the books that we refer to on this podcast, you can find them on our website under the uh, tab Books. And if you buy one through linking or clicking on the link there from Book Depository, we get a kickback. So there you go. If you're looking to buy one of these books, do it through our website and we get a commission. So nobody's done mm. it yet, so you could be the first. <laughs> Here's some fun facts from this book. Um... In 2006, Google bought YouTube for $1.65 billion. At the time, Scott, YouTube had 65 employees. A company worth $1.65 billion had 65 employees. In 2012, Facebook bought Instagram for $1 billion. It had 13 employees. These are amazing figures. These companies are so big and actual employee numbers, you know, so small. Uh, other fun facts. Um, almost half of Americans would be unable to pay a $400 medical emergency bill without going into debt. 
Dear listener, I'm fascinated by America because I think we're so we follow them in so many ways, and you just see some terrible things there, and you think we can't let that happen here. Um, this guy, the author, well, that in particular, we really can't. You know, that, that, that's you know, I saw a thing that um, Bernie Sanders put on Facebook, and it, it was he was talking about the plight of the very poor working poor that they have there. And it was really disgusting that you've got a woman who works six days a week and she's still homeless. Mm. You know, now that is absolutely disgraceful. And she doesn't just work eight hours a day. She works 12, 14 hours a day and she can't get enough to keep a roof over her head. You know, that's bloody disgusting. In his book, he says, uh, democracy's in trouble. He's about my age. He says, uh, so he's in his 50s. Um, until I was six year old, there was bur- there was barely thirty democracies in a world of almost two hundred nations. By the turn of the millennium, there were more than a hundred democracies worldwide. So we'd gone from thirty to a hundred. And he said, now, two thousand and seventeen, there's twenty five fewer democracies than at the turn of the century. So we've perhaps peaked in terms of democracies and going the other way. Um, uh, more fun facts one in six people in America and Europe now believe it would be good or a very good thing for the army to rule one in six yeah. um, bloody hell yeah. and this is this rings true to me um the internet has given us something far closer to Aldous Huxley's Brave New World than 1984. Orwell's fear was that Big Brother would always be watching you. Huxley's dread was that we would be too busy watching Big Brother on TV to care. <laughs> that is true. Uh, if the people yeah. are entertained, they will also be docile. And he tells a story, Vladimir Putin, when he was KGB agent uh, based in Dresden in the 1980s, most of the population could pick up television from the West on their transmitters. Far from being glued to West German news, they were hooked on Dallas, Baywatch and Dynasty. Um, uh, As uh, Evgeny Morozov pointed out in The Net Delusion... There was one part of the East that could not receive West German TV. It was known as the Valley of the Clueless. Yet it was also the most politicised part of the country. People from here applied in far higher numbers for exit visas than their supposedly better informed neighbours. Sometimes the illusion of freedom is all people need. That's scary, Scott. That was from that book. Um, that was from that. Quick article. You can watch, look it up. It's linked there. People in women in Queensland are flying into state to have abortions because it's just too difficult in Queensland. Yet we have a female Premier and a female Attorney General who do nothing. A, and a female Deputy Premier yep, too. a disgrace. Scott... Mm. We're all the way back to the leftovers of last week, which will continue to be leftover till next week, I think. (laughs) (laughs) 
All right. Yeah, that's true. Very good. All right, dear listener, another marathon. Uh, well, sorry for the theory at the beginning, but I think it's important. Um, anyway. No, I thought it was yeah. fine, yeah. We shall be back again next week at some stage. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Bye. Tiki Torch Nazi. Thank you. Bye now. Hanging around the college square. Tiki Torch Nazis. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, 
you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.